Deuteronomy 19, verses 1 through 13, and 21, verses 18 through 21. When the Lord your God cuts off the nations, whose the land the Lord your God is giving you, and you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and in their houses, you shall set apart three cities for yourselves, and in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. You shall measure the distances and divide into three parts the area of the land that the Lord your God gives you as a possession, so that any manslayer can flee to them. This is the provision for the manslayer, who by fleeing there may save his life. If anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally, without having hatred in, hated him in the past, as when someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood, and his hand swings the axe to cut down the tree, and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies. He may flee to one of these cities and live, lest the avenger of, of blood in hot anger pursue the manslayer and overtake him, because the way is long and, the, and strike him fatally, though the man did not deserve to die, since he had not hated his neighbor in the past. Therefore I command you, you shall set apart the three cities and if the lord your god enlarges your territory as he has sworn to the fathers and gives you all the land that he promised to give to your fathers provided you are careful to keep all this commandment which i command you today by loving the lord your god and by walking ever in his ways then you shall add three other cities to these three lest innocent blood be shed in your land that the lord your god is giving you for an inheritance and so the guilt of bloodshed be upon you but if anyone hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him and attacks him and strikes him fatally so that he dies, and he flees into one of these cities, then the elders of the city shall sin and take him from there and hand him over to the avenger of blood so that he may die. Your eyes shall not pity him, but you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel so that it may be well with you. If a, or if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of this city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. The challenge before us this morning is covering... Chapters 19, 20, and 21. Now, there is no way that we're going to cover all these chapters, all that's, in uh, all that's in these chapters in detail. You know, all these chapters uh, that we see here, all the laws and the statutes that are mentioned in all these three chapters, there's just no way to cover all that. But we are going to attempt to mention and touch each one of these specific laws and statutes in some way. That was interesting. <laughs> so one of the challenges is when you look at large sections of the law like we have been doing through chapters 12 through 26 is to find some kind of common ground with all these different laws and statutes. And so one of the suggestions by some of the commentators is to categorize these laws in such a way that it's kind of conveying or restating some of the big ten, the Ten Commandments. And so if we were going to lump these laws and statutes that we're going to look at in these three chapters this morning in this way, then we see that Moses is really instructing the, the people and he's pointing out the sixth commandment, which is the commandment Thou shall not murder. Or we can put it in a more positive way this morning for us, and that is what we're going to be talking about and looking at is perhaps the value and the dignity of life. And so as we start out here in chapter 19, Moses begins by really giving instructions and giving uh, laws concerning the cities of refuge. 
Now, as the people, as the children of Israel were going to be established in the land that God had given them, they were going to set up cities. He told them to set up six cities of refuge. There would be three cities on the east side of the Jordan, and we saw that already mentioned in chapter 4 of Deuteronomy. But then when they were going into the land and they were going to take more possession of the land, they were to set up another six city or another three cities on the west side of the Jordan. And they were to put these cities throughout the land, evenly divided throughout the land, and they were to build roads to each one of these cities so that they could travel on for a specific purpose. And so what was the reason for these cities? Why these cities of refuge? These cities were to be a safe place. They were to be a place of protection. They were to be a place for a person who killed somebody unintentionally, by accident, or by self-defense. And so when someone killed somebody by accident, then they were uh, immediately, they were going to be sought after by the family of the one who they killed. And so God gives instructions here that they were to set up these cities. You see, ancient Israel, when someone was killed, there was an avenger of blood assigned to everyone to kind of protect or to uh, punish the one who had killed that person. And this, we see this based upon the right reading of Genesis, Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Look what it says in Genesis 9, 6. It says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And so we see that this avenger of blood, this avenger of blood was, he, he wasn't some kind of detective that was out there to figure out, you know, was this person killed rightly or was he killed wrongly? Or He wasn't that, that kind of a person. No, he was there to uphold the honor of the family. Now, I love the fact that the Bible is realistic enough that it speaks to real-life issues that we see. And so Moses here, in verses 5 through 6, he gives us an illustration of this by two guys going out into the woods, and they start chopping down trees. And as one man is chopping the tree down, the axe head flies off of the handle and strikes the man in the head and kills him. Now, that could really happen. I mean, I've seen that happen before. I've seen a, the handle of the head of an axe or a head of a, uh, a sledgehammer fly off. And it possibly could have hit somebody. Or in our day, I mean, the reality of it is, is two guys are out there hunting and one guy actually accidentally shoots somebody. That happens from time to time. And so this is the reality, and, and the Bible speaks to the realities that we, we see in life. But if this person dies like that, then the avenger of blood is out to get, get them. And so these refuge cities were put in place so that person could run to the city and find refuge and find safety and not be killed. But then we see in verses 11 through 13, it's all about the guy, the person who sits in wait, lying in wait to kill somebody intentionally, premeditated murder. This person, when they kill that person and they run to a city, they will not find protection, the scripture says. Moses says, you don't, you don't give protection to that person. No, no protection will be found for that person because they are handed over to the avenger of blood. And so why did God set it up this way? Well, we see that. We see the purpose of this and the reason for this in verse 13. Look what it says. For your eye shall not pity that person, but you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel so that it may go well with you. Why did God do this? He did this because the guilt of innocent blood would be upon the land. And God wanted it to go well with his people. And so these refuge cities were set up. Now, 
What does that really mean to us today? How do we relate this today in our world? Listen, if you find yourself in, in a vulnerable situation and you find yourself being hounded by somebody or by something, the Bible tells us very clearly in Psalms 46.1, look what it says, that God is our refuge. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Listen, the Lord is our refuge when we find ourselves under distress and in trouble. We can run to Him. Now, there is one crucial difference between the cities of refuge that we see here in, verse nine, in, in chapter 19 and God as our refuge. You see, the, the cities of refuge were only a refuge to the innocent. They were only a refuge to the innocent. But listen, God is a refuge to the guilty as well. Because all of us are guilty of sin and it falls short of the glory of God. And we can find refuge in Him. And so the next set of instructions that we see here in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 19 concerns property boundaries. Property boundaries. Now, we're not going to say a whole lot about these these boundaries and, and, and these, these rules and laws that were set up here. But I do want to say a couple of things. First thing is this, is that God gave the land to the children of Israel. And within the children of Israel, there were tribes that, that God gave this land to. And so there were boundaries set up for these tribes. And within these tribes, there were clans within these different tribes, families within these different tribes where these boundaries were set up. And within these families, there were individuals that had boundaries of land that was given to them. And so all these, there was all these different boundary lands set up in, in, the, old, in the olden days, it passed, uh, that God set up uh, for these, these individuals, these people. So what does this have to do with murder? How, what does it have to do with murder and, 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 and the really the value and the dignity of life. Well, I just want you to suppose and think about this. You go home this afternoon after church and you go home and you see that your neighbor has knocked down your fence between you two of you. And in fact, he is building a fence in half of your backyard. Now, what do you think you're going to do? How are you going to feel about that? Well, you might be a little upset, won't you? And that being a little upset might, you, might cause you to be a little angry that this guy has taken part of your land. And that anger might turn into a little violence. And that violence might turn into murder. Listen, God has established these boundaries. And he says, don't move the boundary lines that I've established as a protection against violence, which would turn into murder. Because God values life. He values life. The next and the last issue we see here, or law that we see here in chapter 19 concerns witnesses. It's the governing law that we see that deals with the issues of witnesses. Now, let's read, starting in verse 15, and what, the, what Moses has to say here. He says, a single witness shall not be suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that, has, that was, has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the parties and the, the priest and the judges who are in a in office in those days, the judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall say, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never commit, again commit, any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. I shall, it shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, 
and hand for hand and foot for foot. Now, one witness was never enough to establish a fact in a biblical court. One needed two or three witnesses to establish that matter. And that is really even how it is in our society today. We need more than just one witness. Even if it's not a physical person of witness, there needs to be some kind of witness of collaboration to what he's being accused of. And so, you know, why is that? Why is it necessary to have more than just one witness? Well, there's two primary reasons. One witness can become confused. They can become mistaken in his or her testimony. You see, it, it comes down to the basic need of reliability. It must not be my word against your word. But the second reason is because there are evil, malicious people who bring accusations, false accusations against other people. And when this is the case, God's instructed them to bring the matter to the Lord and to the priest and to the judges. And the judges were to diligently discern whether or not this was a true accusation or whether it was a false accusation. And if it was deemed to be false, then the accuser would incur the punishment that they accused the one of. And that same punishment would be given to the accuser. Now, does this seem fair? Does it seem fair to that the one who accused somebody falsely would receive the same punishment that they were asking for? What was God's very purpose for this? Well, look at verse 19. Verse 19 says that you shall purge the evil from your midst. Listen, it was meant to deal with the evil within the community. It was meant to purge it from the community. This was meant to be a strong deterrent from any kind, this kind of activity ever happening again. And so we see this principle of restitution established here in verse 21. Oftentimes, this verse 21 is used as a proof text to show that how harsh God is or how bloodthirsty God is or how unmerciful God is. But really, the opposite is just true. Because what this shows us is how concerned God is for upright justice to be in the land. Fairness in judgment. Jesus quoted this, this very uh, this very verse here, uh, this retribution in verse 21 in Matthew 5, verses 38 and 42. Look what he says here on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, Turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And so, what we see here is that Jesus really doesn't say that this law is wrong in any way, but what Jesus is pointing out here is that we are not obligated to this restitution. We are not obligated to uh, somehow being, uh, you know, retaliating for the wrong that's done to us. In fact, the Jewish leaders, they taught just the opposite. They taught if you were wronged against, then you were obligated to retaliate against that person. But what we see here is that Jesus rightly disallows this application 
And the reason he does is because it's talking about relationship with one another. This eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth principle, this was put in place to guide the judges, to guide the judges in the courts, to guide, instead of guiding the personal relationships and the personal incidences we have with one another. Listen, as God's people, we are never to live beneath the law that God has given. We are to live above it. In fact, we see here when Jesus says, you have heard it said, and then he says, but I say to you, what Jesus is saying is that grace, listen, grace always requires more of us than the law ever required. Grace always goes further than the law would ever go. And so, as God's people, we need to live above the law that we see here. Now, we move to chapter 20. And chapter 20 is all about laws concerning war. Now, we're going to go through this very quickly. And so, listen to what Moses says in verses 1 through 9, chapter 20. When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when you draw near to, to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is, goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. Then the officer shall, say, shall speak to the people saying, Is there any man who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man uh, dedicate it. And is there any man who has planted a vineyard and has not enjoyed its fruits? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in battle, and another man enjoy its fruits. And is there any man who has betrothed a wife and has not taken her? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man take her. And the officer shall speak further to the people and say, Is there any man who is fearful and faint-hearted, let him go back to his house, and let, lest he make the heart of his fellow fellows melt like his own. And when the officers have finished speaking to the people, the commanders, then commanders shall be appointed at the head of the people. And so, war was inevitable for the people of Israel. I mean, they were getting out ready getting ready to go into this land and there were nations within there that God wanted to move and remove and, and, and even destroy and so they were going to be at war a lot. It was inevitable for the people of God. And really war is inevitable for us in a sense because we are constantly in a spiritual war. So the first thing I want you to see here is that is there's a command to trust God. There is a command to trust God. You see, the enemies and the armies that they were going to be fighting were going to be bigger than they were. They were going to have more horses than they would, more chariots than they would, and they were going to have a whole lot of more capability than the people of God would. But God's word to his people was, don't be afraid. Why? Don't be afraid but trust God because I am with you. I am the one who brought you out of Egypt. I am the one who's taken you into land, and I am with you. <clears throat> now, I don't know about you, but I need to hear that. I need to hear the fact that God is with me in battle because I am constantly, every time it seems like every battle I face, every situation that I'm coming up against, is a whole lot more uh, bigger than I am. 
It's more grander than I am. It's the, the odds are unsurmountable against me. But I don't need to fear because God is with me. The second thing we see here is that there's a command to encourage the people before the battle. Encourage the people before the battle. We see here that it was the job of the priest to encourage the people as they go into battle. They were in to encourage, encourage the soldiers with the truth of who God is, what the situation was, and how they were to respond. Because God was getting ready to do something in their midst. Listen, every battle that you and I face has some kind of spiritual element to it. And so we need spiritual encouragement when we go into the battle. I love the specific encouragement that the priest gives the people in verse 4. Look what it says in verse 4. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. Listen, the battle is not ours alone. You are never going alone into the battle that you face. But God, it's God's as well. And that truth in and of itself is enough reason to have courage in every battle that you and I face. And that's why Paul could say very confidently in Romans 8, 31, if God is for us, then who could be against us? The next thing we see here is that more doesn't mean more effective. More doesn't mean more effective. In verses 5 through 9, it talks about how to shrink the army. He's talking about how to shrink the army. And so the first thing uh, that we see here is that God instructs to, to send home those who have unfinished business at home. Unfinished business at home. He says, if there's a man who has built a house and he hasn't dedicated yet, then send that guy home. If there's someone who's planted a vineyard and they've not, they've not reaped the harvest yet from their vineyard, then send that person home. If someone has, has just got married and he's not, you know, gone on the honeymoon yet, then send that person home. Why? Because that person, his mind's not all in it. His heart's not all in it. That person who has all these distractions back home is easily distracted. And when you are easily distracted, you are easily defeated. And so God says, send those people home. The next instruction he gives here about the army is he says, send those home who are fearful and faint-hearted. If, if there's a man who's fearful and faint-hearted, then that guy needs to be sent home. Why is that? Because his fear, fear might produce fear among the rest of the people. It might melt his fellow soldiers' hearts. And so he says, send those, that people home. You see, God is willing to make these kind of exemptions because he knew this. Any victory didn't depend on the size of the army. It depend, it depend upon the testimony of the army that they trusted in God for the victory. Man, one of the greatest examples is this, is Gideon and his 300 men. In, in Judges chapter 7, Gideon started out with 32,000 men. And God said, Gideon, that's way too many. You got way too many guys. And so he whittled it down until he had 300 dedicated, courageous men. And God took 300 men and destroyed the whole Midianite army with only 300 men. So God got the victory. The last thing we see here, the instructions that he gives, is that God commands his army to have leadership. God commands his army to have leadership. Listen, it doesn't matter how brave an army is or how effective an army is. Every army, every organization 
Every church needs good leadership because God set it up that way. God set it up that way because God wants leaders. Now, the rest of chapter 20, we're not going to cover. You can look at that and, and see that for yourself. But uh, what I want to say about that is that God's way of doing things even rule how war is conducted. God's way of doing things even rules how war is conducted because victory isn't to come by any old certain way. It doesn't come by any conceivable way. It comes by the way God wants it to come because a just God wants a just war. And so that leads us to chapter 21. Now, the first instruction we see here in, in chapter 21 deals with unsolved murders. Here, once again, we see that God wants the community of faith to value the dignity of life. And so, let's look and see what he has to say here in verses 1 through 9 in chapter 21. If in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess, someone is found slain, laying in the open country, and is not, it is not known who killed him, then your elders and your judges shall come out, and they shall measure the distance to the surrounding cities, and the elders of the city that is nearest to the slain man shall take a heifer, and that has, that has never been worked, and that has never been pulled in a yoke. And the elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to the valley with running water, which is neither plowed nor sown, and they shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. Then the priest and the sons of Levi shall come forward, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the name of the Lord. And by their very word, and by their word every dispute and every assault shall be settled. And all the elders of the city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley. And they shall testify, our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it shed. Accept atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, and do not set the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people. Israel your people Israel, so that their blood guilt be atoned for. So you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. Now, first thing I want you to see how this concerns the, the value and the dignity of life is that there was responsibility taken for this one found, killed. They didn't know how it happened. There was responsibility taken. The first thing we see is here is that they, they measure out the cities where this person was found. They measure out, say, which, okay, which city is he closest to? And then the elders of that city, they took responsibility for that, that one who was killed. And they took responsibility um, with the actions that they took, what took place. The second thing that I want you to see is that there was atonement. Atonement was sought after. This, this was a crime that had been committed, and it was not to be ignored, by, uh, but God gave them a way to atone for what had happened. And so they, they had this elaborate ceremony that took place whatever city it was the elders of that city they would they would take a heifer that had never been uh, worked and they would go to a, a field that had never been plowed with running water in it and there they would break the heifer's neck now i want you to notice they broke the neck they didn't slay the heifer they broke the neck and then they would then the the elders the, the priest and the uh uh, uh, and the elders, they would wash their hands over the heifer's neck, confessing and 
testifying to the fact that they didn't shed this person's blood and they didn't see it shed. And so they were asking for atonement to be made for this innocent blood that was shed. But then they offered prayers. A prayer was offered for the people. Now I want you to notice, it's very interesting here, that it says here that they didn't pray for the people just in the city that was responsible. But they prayed for all the people. Twice he says that they prayed for the people of Israel. All the people of Israel. Now I wonder why that is. Well, it is true. This is true. Our sins affect more than just us. Amen. Your sins affect more than just you. The sin of this killing of this person affected more than just the people in that city. It, it affected all of Israel. Now what's the purpose? Once again, we see it in verse 9. Verse 9 he says that so that you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from your midst. To purge this, this guilt of this innocent blood. Listen, murder, premeditated murder is evil. It is wickedness that cannot be tolerated in the community of faith. Because it goes against God and his character. It makes me think about what Jesus said on the Sermon of the Mount. When he said, you've heard it said, do not kill. But I say, do not get angry with your brother. When you get angry with your brother, it's like you've killed him already. I just, it really sets heavy on my heart when we see disputes and anger among brothers. Because what we're seeing is just slain people all over the place. And that should not be in our body. And we're going to bypass these next two instructions we see here. Uh, here in chapter 21 concerning marrying female captives and the inheritance rights uh, of the firstborn. But what I, if you look at those, I think what... I want you to see, and what God wants us to understand is that in this community of faith that we live, there needs to be a fair and just dealings within the family. There needs to be fair and just dealings within the family. And so that leads us really to this last part, or this next section, this instructions on what to do with rebellious sons. Or daughters. What to do with rebellious sons or daughters? Now, I wish I could have seen as Sherry was reading this passage. I wish I could have seen all the all, all the youth and all the kids' faces as she read this, because really, when you read this, it sounds so extreme. It sounds so severe. But uh, the first thing I want you to understand about this when, when, is that this is not a child that he's talking about. This is not some youth either. What he's talking about here is a grown man who is of age, who is stubborn and rebellious to the point that he will not listen to his father or his mother. The second thing I want you to see here is that Moses clarifies for us very clearly that it's not like that his parents had just let him run wild and they let him uh, do whatever he wanted without being checked. No, it says here that the parents disciplined him and they disciplined him and they disciplined him to no avail. They disciplined him. And this kind of rebellion that we see here mentioned, this kind of rebellion was not just a rebellion against his parents, but this was a, a rebellion against God. Because really what he was doing, he was rebelling against the fifth commandment of honoring 
your mother and your father. I don't know how many times Kim and I we told Jill and Garrett, if you will disobey us, your parents, and rebel against us, then you will disobey and rebel against God. And that's what we see here. This, this person is rebelling against God. So what were these parents to do? <laughs> when a parent had that kind of situation, what were they to do? Well, the instructions that we see here is that the, they were to bring him before the elders of the city. And they were to explain the situation to the elders. And then the elders were to pass judgment on this one. Now, it is very important to note that the parents, they didn't have the right. The Jewish parents didn't have the right to somehow take that, that son or daughter's life. They didn't have the right. It wasn't like the Greeks or the Romans back in that day where the father had absolute right of life and death over their children. But if it was determined that the son was chronically rebellious, then the men of the city would take him out into the streets and they would stone him to death. Now that's severe. That's severe. Why so extreme? Why... Why was this so extreme? Why did God put this kind of instruction and law in place that's so extreme? Well, we see the phrase once again. We see, we've seen it over and over and over. You shall do this to purge the evil from you. You do this to purge the evil from your midst. Listen, there is a sense in which the whole community will be affected by this kind of rebellious behavior. And there is a sense in which the punishment for this, for such a behavior will affect also the whole community. Look at the tagline on verse 21. I, I, I really like what, what, how Moses puts this. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. All Israel shall hear and fear. Listen, God's command here, this was to be a preventative measure. So this kind of rebellion would not spread throughout the whole community because God values the whole community. Listen, this, Paul said it so well in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. When evil, wicked rebellion goes unchecked, it will spread like gangrene. You catch it quickly, and you might cut off one finger. But if you let it go unchecked, you might have to cut off your whole arm, or maybe lose your whole life. And that's what this instruction is for, to protect the whole community. And so we come to the final instruction we see here in, in chapter 21, and that's verse 22. Look at, look at verse 22. This final instruction here. And if a man has committed a crime punishable, punishable by death, and he, is put to, and he is put to death, and you, hang, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hangman is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. Now this last instruction here we are very familiar with because it shows us what Jesus did for us and how he was hung on a tree. This here was once again a very severe punishment. Now this death, it wasn't by strangulation. It wasn't like the, the Wild West where they were just stringing up guys for uh, shooting somebody or, or stealing a horse, you know, as you see in the Westerns. No, this wasn't that kind of hanging and strangulation. But no, this was after the person was put to death, that they, they had committed a crime that was worthy of death, then they were even more severe, severely punished by hanging them on a tree. 
Why did they do this? They did it because they had committed such a bad crime that they deserved public shame and humiliation. And they became a spectacle. But the worst part of it was this. As the scripture says, that they were cursed by God. They were cursed by God. But I want you to see something here. I want you to see, even in this most extreme punishment there is, there's mercy. There's mercy. Because God says, don't leave them on that tree overnight. But take him down and bury him that same day. That is mercy. That's mercy. Listen, the Apostle Paul beautifully expounds this verse to us in Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 through 14. Look what it says. Listen to what Paul says. Excuse me. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Listen, you and I deserve the most extreme punishment there is. And that is being eternally separated from a loving God. But because of God's great love for us, Jesus redeemed us from that curse when he became a curse for us and he hung on that tree at Golgotha. Golgotha. And as a result, every one of us who believe in the finished work of Christ, then we have the promise from the Spirit, of the Spirit, through faith, to receive the Spirit through faith. What a mercy that is. What a mercy that is. And so, we see... In these chapters, after walking through these chapters, we see um, what does God want us to see? What is he wanting us to to really receive from all these laws and these statues in these, these three chapters? What is the takeaway for us this morning? Well, I have a couple of thoughts I wanna I wanna share with you as far as the takeaway. The first thing <clears throat> The first thing I want you uh, to see and what I believe God wants us to, to take away is that God doesn't want us to miss the big picture of the law. God doesn't want us to miss the big picture of the law. Now, if we are not careful, we can become so distracted by all these laws, all these different laws and statues in these chapters in, from chapter 12 to, verse, to chapter 26, all these different laws that we're looking at in these, in these chapters, we can become distracted and we can miss what God is doing by the law. We can miss it. You've heard it said that you can't see the forest for the trees. You know, if if all we're doing is looking at this elm tree over here and this cedar tree over here and we're looking at this sycamore tree over here and we, we see all these different trees but we can't see the very purpose of the forest and what God wants with the forest. And that's what we can find ourselves doing here if we're not careful. So what God is really wanting to take place here, what, what he's seeing, he want, what what God really wants to see take place as Moses gives the law, these last words of the law to the people here, God is saying to the people, you have my law now. Now what are you going to do with it? I've given you my law. What are you going to do with it now? Because as the people, as his people, they were to go into the land and they were to build a community that would foster and promote a holiness of life. 
And so what God was saying is that you are to create a culture that is conducive for holiness. God was saying to them, I want you to implement and to uphold my laws in such a way that you, together, you advance and you live a life honoring to me. Sojourn, I believe the same is true for us as a community of faith. God is wanting us to live in such a way in this world and live in such a way with each other that we are creating a culture conducive for holiness. Now, a second takeaway that I think God wants us to, to gain here this morning is that the culture that the community of faith creates must actively pursue holiness. As a community of faith, we have to actively pursue holiness in our lives. Now, when we use the word culture, what are we saying? What do I say? What do I mean by that word culture? Well, we define culture as being what most people in a group or a community or even in a church, what they think is acceptable. Now, for example, in rural village life in India, you rarely see adultery in the rural villages of India. Because if a man was caught cheating on his wife, the other men in the village would take that man down to the river and they would let him know what they thought about it. And so that's why you rarely see adultery in the rural villages in India. But bribery and corruption run rampantly and are given a blind eye. It's just all over the place in the villages. And so the principle at play is this. Whatever the community approves will multiply and increase. Whatever the community opposes will decline and diminish. And that is just a fact of culture. It's in fact in every culture. It's a fact in our culture here in Enid. It's a fact in the culture here in our church. Whatever we approve will increase. Whatever we disapprove will decrease. And so the question remains, what kind of culture would the people of God create? Would they produce a community that fosters holiness and resists sin? Or would they develop a community that is letting anything go unchecked on the people's behavior? And that was the challenge before the people of God when they entered into the land among all those nations that they were, they were going to be living among. And I believe it's the same challenge that you and I face as God's people today. Listen, this Christian life that we are to live, it's not easy. It's not easy to, to live the Christian life. It's almost impossible. In fact, I would say it is impossible to live the Christian life. Now, why is that? Well, there's two reasons why it's impossible for you and I to live the Christian life. Number one, it's our nature. And number two, it's our environment. Our nature is such that we are not prone to do the will of God. We're just not prone to do the will of God. In fact, we, uh, we're not prone to do the will of God. We we, did, we resist the will of God because of our nature. But number two is that this world in which we live in, this environment in which we live in, is such that it pressure, the pressures of life push us away from pursuing the path of holiness. This Situations that we live in, they push us away from God's holiness. And so what does God have to do? What does God do for us to, to give us the ability to live the Christian life? Well, number one, he gives us a new nature. 
If anyone's in, anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. We're not perfect people by no means, but we do have the Holy Spirit within us that dwells within us that gives us the power to live holy lives. But number two, God brings us in to a new environment, which is the church. And in this new environment, we have different set of values now uh, than the, the world and the media and this culture that we live in. We have a whole brand new world of values now. And as the church is to be an environment that fosters and promotes a holy life. It is a set and we see this really set out in the Old Testament, uh, in principle in the Old Testament, but we see it is to be applied in the New Testament by all of us. Now listen, every one of us, every one of us need encouragement in this culture of the church. We need encouragement in this culture of the church because we are weak, and all of us need restraint from the culture of believers because we are willful. And if it is this commitment, this commitment that helps us grow in our holiness. Now, how, how do we do this? How, how do we as a church actually pursue holiness? Let me mention three ways in which we can pursue holiness as a church. Number one, we pursue holiness by protecting the vulnerable. We pursue holiness by protecting the vulnerable. Did we not see that throughout these chap chapter 19? Protecting the vulnerable? Protecting the one who accidentally killed somebody? They, that person was vulnerable. They were to be protected. Protecting the one who was falsely accused by a, 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 a one witness who was lying against them, they were vulnerable. God put it in place in, in a way that there is protection for the vulnerable. Listen, we must be a community of faith at Sojourn that we protect the vulnerable. When someone finds themselves vulnerable, then we need to be ready with open arms to say, here, we're going to protect you. We're here to protect you. We need to be a safe place that people can run to. This is the kind of community we need to be because this is the kind of holiness that God calls us to. The second way that you and I pursue holiness as a church is by restraining the wicked. By restraining the wicked. We saw that several times in chapters in chapters 19 through 21. And in each one of those examples, God's purpose for restraining the wicked was to purge the evil and the wickedness from their midst. If we're going to be a community that fosters holiness, then we must stand against evil that is in us and we must resist, resist sin in our community. We must not turn a blind eye to evil, to, to evil and wickedness that is among us. Now, how do we do that? H how do we determine what is just the run-of-a-mill sin among us or what is wickedness and rebellion? Well, I believe there's three primary areas that we must confront among the people of God. That's not all of them, but there's three primary ones. The number one is there should be no breaking away from the worship of God. If we see idolatry within our midst, then we need to confront it. We need to confront it. Number two, we need to confront and keep the sanctity of marriage. If there's adultery within our midst, we need to confront it. And number three, the sanctity of life. We need to uphold and be a people who uphold life. If we as a people of God don't hold fast and confront 
one another in these areas, then we cannot cultivate holiness in our community as believers. Because these three areas are sacred to God. The third way that we actively pursue holiness is by restoring the penitent. Restoring the penitent. Now, we don't necessarily, we didn't necessarily see those in these, cha- this, in these, these three chapters we read, but it is all throughout the whole scriptures. As we look at these laws here in the book of Deuteronomy, let's never forget the context of which the laws were given. When God gave the law, he gave them at Sinai. And the laws were given, when they were given, they were, they were given and they would condemn us for breaking them. But the same time God gave the law, he gave the sacrifices. And that, that would atone for breaking the law. Now, that is significant. The same time God gave the law that would condemn us, God gave the sacrifices that would atone for that condemnation that the law gave us. So, so what we see here is that the same God who said that there would be death for the worship of idols is the same God who would provide atonement through the sacrifices for, for those who made the golden calf. God found a way that the full penalty of the law would not fall upon you and me. And so the same God who said stone the adulterer was the same God who, commit, who, 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 who cleansed, found a way to cleanse and forgive uh, David for committing adultery with Bathsheba. You see, forgiveness and restoration has always been in the heart of God and in the mind of God when it comes to us, his people. Listen, mercy and grace, the mercy and the grace of God that shines very dimly in the Old Testament, we see shine so brightly in the new. And that's why Paul could write what he wrote in Romans 6, 23. Look what it says, Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is life eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If you've never experienced the wonderful truth and the wonderful reality of this verse, today you can. The law that was given that condemns you for being a sinner and separates us from a holy God, that same God made a way. He made a way for us as sinners to come and have life And not just have life, but have life eternal through the sacrifice of his son Jesus. And all we have to do is just believe. Just believe what he did. And so the marks of a culture that is conducive of holiness is one, protecting the vulnerable, resisting the wicked, and restoring the penitent. Now how does that all sound? How does that all sound to you? Does it sound realistic? Does it sound unattainable in a world in which we live? Listen, the God who called the people to holiness in the book of Deuteronomy is the same God who's calling us to holiness today because God has never changed. He's never changed. And so do you want to be part of a community of believers who are ready to protect the vulnerable? Do you want to be a part of a community of believers who are concerned enough to confront sin in the community? Do you want to be a part of a community of believers who are willing and ready to restore the one who has repented of their sin? Do you want to be a part of a church or community like that? Then church... It starts with you, and it starts with me. Being a person, that kind of person who desires to be a conduit of holiness themselves. If you want to be that, then I want to ask you to pray. I want to ask you to pray and ask God 
to change you and to make you a conduit for holiness. Let's pray. God, we believe all of your word is from you and is good for us and reveals who you are. And we confess to you that we've heard some strange things today from your word, your 3,500-year-old commands to your people, Israel. And some of it seems very far away from us accidental death by axe handle malfunction, um, captive wives, how to handle going to war, stoning rebellious kids. Um, I don't think our neighbor is going to move the fence today. But your character shines through in all of these things and reminds us how much you value human beings that you made in your image. And you care very deeply, no less today, how we treat one another and how we view one another. And we know, God, ultimately you are our city of refuge. You are our safe place where we are free from all of the guilt of our sin. But we also want our church to be a city of refuge. And even in ourselves, we want to be cities of refuge to people around us. And if we dig down deep in our hearts, we can find all kinds of people that we don't really value, that we think don't matter, or that we're better than. And as Jesus even said in the Sermon on the Mount, we might hate them because they believe differently than us about religion or politics or maybe because they do something that we think we would never do or maybe they look differently than us it's evil and it lurks in our hearts God so please forgive us for not valuing human beings like we should and I pray that we would be passionate about defending the vulnerable and about laying down our lives for all people even if they think that we're idiots, even if they don't believe in you, God. They are eternal souls, and you made them in your image, and you want them to know and understand who you are. You want them to be safe. You want them to be fed. You want them to be clothed, and we are your body on this earth that does these things, Lord. So give us compassion for the weak. Give us compassion for the people that we don't like, you made them too. And we need to love our enemies. That's what you did, Jesus, for us. And that's the best thing that we can give the human beings on this earth that you made is your good news, that you are a God of mercy and that you are a God who came down to earth and was hanged on a tree and died a shameful death to take our shame away. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us. Thank you for valuing us. It doesn't make sense, but you do, and you have.